Welcome to Love Nature, a presentation of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. In this episode, we meet Dr. Rachel Smith. Rachel is an astrophysicist and head of the museum's astronomy and astrophysics lab. Rachel is interested in the origins of life and investigating what is perhaps the greatest mystery of all, are humans alone in the universe? We would appreciate if you would share this podcast and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find Love Nature at love-nature.org and you can explore our museum at naturalsciences.org. Here are our hosts, CEO and Director of the Museum, Dr. Eric Dorfman, and Chief Veterinarian and Director of Veterinary Sciences, Dr. Dan Dombrowski. Rachel, it's fantastic to have you on the show with us. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here. So glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Dr. Smith. Rachel, uh, you're an astrophysicist, right? So an astrophysicist. You have a PhD in cosmochemistry and astrochemistry. Uh, so that's kind of a, a different career than most of our guests or, or that I, I've been involved with myself. And I think we need to just start off by telling folks a little bit about that. What, what does that mean? Aside from it just being so incredibly cool. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to be here. And thank you guys for inviting me my today. Just want to say, so yeah, my official degree title happens to be in geochemistry, uh, which is basically the study of you know, essentially chemistry of uh, rocks and the earth. And an extension of that is the study of meteorites, and that's cosmochemistry. And this happened to be the department I was in at UCLA. And my thesis, however, was in astrochemistry. Uh, so my study, my research was observational astronomy of forming stars and looking at the chemistry of these systems. And so that is where my astrophysics comes in. And that's actually what I did my thesis on and what my research is on. So, but all of these titles of what kind of chemistry or field it is really tie together. It's a very interdisciplinary science. And so, you know, with the it's, a, it, it's all kind of linked in terms of planetary and stars and the Earth, and uh, I think actually connects rather well with nature and your interest in that. And so um, I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah, no, that's incredible. I just have to ask one question. So yeah. you were doing chemistry, but observing stars in space and doing chemistry that way? Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Uh, it's funny because not a, when you hear about results and discoveries, you don't often see the evidence of the chemistry in that. And by that, I mean like a spectrum where you see these lines right. and all these lines pointing down, which to me are the most exciting things that to study because that's the chemistry. That's the fingerprints of molecules around these stars, which can be so far away, the center of the galaxy, or even our neighbor's our neighboring stars that are forming in giant clouds. And so the chemistry we do is all computer-based, really, and using these giant telescopes and getting the data. And from a little bit of light, you see, you can actually do chem research on the chemistry. So it's a very different kind of chemistry than being in a laboratory and using test tubes, although that is also very interesting. And um, But there are experiments, too, on uh, that my colleagues and I um, collaborate on uh, in terms of uh, actually doing chemistry research in a lab. I have a colleague at the Jeff Propulsion Lab who does that. And 
these connect to observations. So all of this research in chemistry comes from different ways. And so as an astronomer, looking at the chemistry of the stars to me is the most fascinating, and that comes from life. And so I can look at it on my laptop or really anywhere. So, so I have to say, like, when I do research or, or my science in, in medicine, and I usually start with, you know, the box and the, the limits and sort of what de- defines what I'm looking at. Like, I'll, I'll look at a list and I'll, a lot of times I go to the bottom of the list and start there. And it, I, it's just, it's so interesting to think about studying something that's like, it's just so vast. Like, the concept of that is just incredible. Well, they, yeah, it's different. It is. It's, uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's a scientific approach as well, I would say, as a vet. You probably have, like, if you're trying to do a differential diagnosis on an animal, say, you come up with some ideas and you try to explore those. And in some way, you know, with research like this, you, you know, I'm just observing. So it's like I'm not expecting to find anything. I, don't, I, I know it ahead of time that there are molecules there because these are stars that have been studied but not in this exact way. And so I'll know their molecules, but I won't know the result and I won't know the answer. So it's kind of exploring in this way of what, you know, what's most exciting. And I'm actually in the midst of analyzing some of the data now um, is, you know, what will I find? What will these numbers tell me? And then you can piece together a story about the star. And in a way, it's like it's not quite a diagnosis, but it's like finding an answer in this sort of very different kind of approach than, you know, testing various diseases approaches or something like that and so yeah it's, it's um it is different but i'd say like on a grand scheme it's kind of a similar idea of like trying to solve a mystery of how you know what can we learn about these stars that also tell us about our own solar system and tell us about planets in general and so yeah it's, it's different but in a way you can connect with that as well wow. you're also interested in the origins of life itself aren't yeah. you yeah how, how does that play into this story. Yeah, so I mean, so many astronomers now are interested in this. It's, um, I think this is the big mystery of humanity, honestly, to know if we're alone, first of all, in the universe, and how life started on Earth. And we don't have answers to either of those questions. And so the research I do, looking at carbon chemistry in particular right now, via carbon monoxide, which is a molecule that can easily observe in a lot of these stars, is trying to understand these chemical pathways that could lead to planets. And we think now, astronomers think that all stars should have a planet. And mm-hmm. our understanding of what type of planets could support life has changed dramatically since missions came aboard, like the Kepler mission, which will be discovered thousands of potentially Earth-like habitable worlds. And so while I'm studying stars that are way before these stages of evolution with planets, Although some could have planets actually at this moment, but like kind of these earlier stages, we're still trying to learn about this chemistry. And that's where chemistry comes in, is that the origin of life couldn't have happened really without chemistry. And we don't know those answers. And when I teach my students about this, I come across this question every semester almost or every year, depending on when I teach this class, it is the origin of life. And so I'm thinking about this all the time of, you know, we haven't come that far in trying to figure it out. We don't know could it have come from meteorites. Could it have come from, um, you know, fully formed in some way in some cell on a meteorite, or could it was it molecular and then, uh, you know, would somehow originally became life on Earth, or did it form uh, organically at the bottom of the ocean, you know, deep in the deep sea, which is a leading hypothesis. So we don't have these answers, but astronomers can help with this. 
right, and try to figure out the chemistry. And then if we can understand the carbon chemistry, we can better understand how unique the Earth is. You know, how unusual are we as a planet? We're the only planet where we know that there's life of any kind, let alone intelligent life. And then, you know, we're trying to, like, piece this together in little tiny bits of information. And it's very interdisciplinary. So you have biologists, and you have chemists, and you have astronomers, and planetary people, and even going to the the cosmologists who study the Big Bang. I mean, all of these disciplines come together to try to answer this question. And, and honestly, if we discover life beyond this planet, that will be, in my opinion, and some others believe this too, you know, this will be the discovery of humankind. Mm-hmm. So you teach a class called Astrobiology, Exploring Life in the Universe. Is that right? So you're, th- this is like a main topic in your study and when you're teaching students. Yeah, so I teach it. What I love about this course, I, do, I developed this course for App State, and it uh, started off just for astrophysics students. It's Astrobiology, Exploring Life in the Universe, and now it's a general education class. And what I love about that is it brings in all of these students who may have never had a science class and many will never take possibly another science class again all students like you can turn them into scientists and then i <laughs> then i win no <laughs> but it, it's what's really cool about it is it brings in a lot of psychology majors and anthropology and art majors and i love that because all these perspectives are so important to try to understand our place in the universe and so when i teach them you know we talk about the origin of life on earth we talk about the scientific method we talk about extraterrestrial intelligence, which is probably the main reason why many of them take the class in the first place. We talk about extinctions and all of these kind of, it's kind of a big, big, broad brush of a lot of disciplines. And, and, it, and, it, and it has something for everyone. And so, and I think that's generally true for the public and for humankind in general, is that there's something, you know, when we think about the uh, humanity's place in the universe, that's a question anyone, I think, can relate to. What are your own thoughts about life in the universe? Is it the lonely planet <laughs> hypothesis or whatever it's called? The yeah. or and and if we have life, if it were if there is life out there, what do you think it might be like? Yeah, you know, I think about this a lot, and I love this question. I um so from a scientific my science hat right now, and I'm a pretty objective person. Uh, in some ways, um, <laughs> and then I go and talk to my ghosts, right? So it's not always. <laughs> but but um, there you go. Right? Uh, you know, we don't have any evidence for life out there, first of all. So I have to say, no matter what I think about it or believe about it, we still have no we have no evidence that there's life out there. But I will say this: is that there is so much out there. There are trillions of stars. There are now exoplanets all over that we're seeing, and we can extrapolate that out to the universe of so many potential planets that could support life. And then there's everything we don't know that we have to acknowledge that is out there. We don't even know how big the universe really is. We know the extent of the visible universe, but it could be many times greater than that. We don't even know we're the only universe. Um, So we have so much we don't know. And I personally believe that there has to be life out there. But I also have to believe, you know, I have to acknowledge the fact that space is so vast. And it's what Carl Sagan said that resonates most with me about this is that he would say, you know, he was a big proponent, proponent of this search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is SETI, which you may hear about, is that he was a huge proponent of this. And he, you know, 
really supported steady on all these missions and stuff. Um, and he said, you know, space is vast and the stars are far apart. And I play this video with that quote in it every time, every class that I teach in astrology, just to set this stage of no matter what we want to believe about life beyond this planet, even if it's statistically more probable that there's life out there than there isn't life out there, we may never find it because it, we are limited by the speed of light in terms of the information we can get. So with this like incredible perspective, like you, you talked about how big and vast this, this uh, you know, the media of space is, you said your students, when you talk about astrobiology, become more engaged and more concerned about climate change and, and the things that are now small planet in that perspective uh, are facing. What, what do you think are the, the biggest challenges, environmental challenges? You know, we're, we're facing all these problems right now. From your perspective, from that bigger perspective, what does that mean for, for the planet? Um, optimistically, the students come in with this view. Some of them are a little more pessimistic than I hope, but some of them say, like, you know, we're going to in not a great way to look, but, but it's possible. I mean, they're not wrong. Yeah. And what I think is the threat, I mean, look, oh boy, humans do some very unintelligent things, um, to, to put it bluntly or lightly, I guess, is that, you know, we, we are not taking care of the climate. We don't acknowledge the big changes as a whole, I'm saying a lot of people do. Um, we don't acknowledge the big changes that are necessary. And what I think is a big challenge for this is getting this down to the individual person level of being able to, how do I change this? And it's daunting yeah. for climate because the climate, it's like, how do I as a little person change the climate? I can't change the place. It's too big. And so I can't imagine that my single car or my plastic bottle or plastic bag is going to make any difference. And so I think that in terms of recycling, I think that these initiatives have actually made a difference that people have recycled more over the last several decades. And that's another problem, of course, right, about how much is actually getting recycled. Yeah. But this is the yeah. need, yeah. right, of it, getting people to, on the grassroots level, make changes was, is hard to do, especially with these very large global, literally planetary problems. You can talk about this on lots of different levels in choices they make. So food choices. Uh, lifestyle choices in terms of, you know, choosing what kind of car, you know, do you travel, do you not travel? And we're all guilty of doing things that aren't necessarily the most wholesome way, I guess, or uh, addressing this problem. But in making choices in people, I find it's very hard to get people to change their belief system of how their choices affect the planet, or even if their single choice can make it. And so I think that's a challenge. I don't know if that's, it's a very hard problem to solve. People have very ingrained thoughts about how they grow up a certain way or you're educated a certain way or you think a certain way. And that's all fine. It all makes sense. But if then you're said, then you're told, hey, you know, this thing you're doing that you've been doing for the last however many years is bad, then you're like, well, I can't, you know, then it becomes, it can also become, overwhelming and then people can't figure out what to do so i think a challenge is getting this message of how do we help the environment how do we help all life on earth uh down to an individual level and, and convincing people somehow or at least getting the message across of how their choices can help with these problems 
I only just found this out that you're also a veterinarian, aren't you? Yeah, by Which, training I am. <laughs> by training, I'm, and I I actually only just discovered that. Oh, I'm, okay. It's so incredible. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about the vastness of space and, and these concepts that are so big we can't connect to them. And yet many of us, and I, I think most of the people that would listen to this podcast do connect to, to nature on a personal level. And obviously, you have a, a wonderful trio of donkeys and chickens and all sorts of marvelous livestock that, that in fact, I follow on Instagram. And if anybody <laughs> wants to follow you, it is Space Donkey 3 on Instagram. So just a plug for your amazing animals. Talk to us a little bit about your personal experience with nature on whatever scale you choose and whether it's the animals that you have in your life every day or or something else. What what really resonates with you? I've always been a nature person, honestly. And I, I grew up in a suburb outside New York City and so and I've always been very outdoors oriented and from an early age loved animals and was good at science and so I thought, Oh hey, you know, I'll be a vet and and I did that, but my, my father actually was an astronomer, and I never understood oh. what he did, because he worked, so I'd have that interest in me also, but I will say that um, he worked for Grumman when it was just Grumman Aerospace, and he did technically some top secret things that he would never really explain to us, uh, but we did look at the planets, and he, we went to, when Haley's Comet came around in 1986, I think, um, we went to Hawaii to see it, and we were, always had this interest in space. But for me, I love animals, and I've always loved animals, and I thought, you know, and I've always connected with them. I feel like I, I probably connect with them a little too closely to be a vet. I felt, <laughs> I feel like um, I didn't really, I graduated, I graduated from Cornell, and I came down to North Carolina actually to start an internship, and I just didn't, you know, I, I was very, I really was in, I enjoyed the academic part of veterinary medicine, but I didn't enjoy the a lot of the hands-on stuff for a number of reasons, but it didn't have a lot. It didn't have anything to do with the animals. But in any case, I've always had animals and I always connect with them. And I, you know, I was talking to Dan the other day about this actually, is that I get accused sometimes of anthropomorphizing and, you know, don't instill person, you know, you instill too much in your chickens or your dogs. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I don't, I don't think we have my feeling on this and my answer to that is that how do you know that I'm anthropomorphizing any more than you know that you're not giving them enough intellectual credit for I agree. We yeah. don't know. And yeah. I remember Dan a few years ago we had this really good discussion about this about and it really sat with me like what you said about we are evolved a certain way. And this is absolutely true. We are not the height of evolution by any stage, I think, in general, in this whole grand universe. This gets back and forth to astrobiology. But we've also evolved a certain way of perceiving the world. And we can't even see all the colors that other animals right. can see. We see a limited mm -hmm. view. From an astronomical standpoint, there's a whole electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see with our eyes. I mean, there's a whole universe we can't even perceive. So for animals, like animals, you know, we can't speak their languages. We, we make a judgment or an assessment based on our perception and hopefully, you know, we're doing the best we can, but in a lot of cases 
we aren't, I think, doing the best we can as a general rule, and we abuse that power that we have over animals. And so my connection with them is, you know, I just feel very connected to animals in general. I can tell you 100% they have different personalities. They talk to each other over quarantine. I actually told so much. I almost thought my chickens were speaking English. Yeah, so I guess I've always just connected with that. And my work as an astronomer, you know, when I think about it, I mean, I've always just loved being out in the world. I tend to not always gravitate towards the cities. And I keep going to places that are, like, remote. and more in nature and actually tomorrow at 6 a.m i'm going back to hawaii to observe and one of my favorite right. places on earth is the summit of mauna kea it is gorgeous it is beautiful and it is empty and it is natural and more beautiful and then there's the telescopes up there and it's like it feels like you're on top of the world um, and then you are literally observing beyond the world now you mentioned going to Mauna Kea on a research trip. Yeah. What? It, tell, tell us a little bit about that. So tomorrow I leave. So it's a long flight, <laughs> and I fly out to Hilo, which is the eastern side of the Big Island of Hawaii. And then, basically, what's what's great about the telescope I'm using now. So I'm using NASA's infrared telescope facility. It's a three meter telescope on the summit of Mauna Kea, which that summit is arguably the best place for observing in the entire planet uh, due to its elevation of about 14,000 feet and its great number of good weather days. It's high, it's dry. So it really is an excellent location. And there's some pretty famous observatories up there. This is a fairly small observatory. What was nice about it is you can observe at the telescope itself versus doing it remotely. I'm actually at the instrument. and But being at the telescope, it's this whole idea of for me at least, and it's, it's, it's a dying art, honestly, of astronomers going to their telescopes. Obviously, you can't go to space to observe like on the Hubble or soon to be James Webb Space Telescope, but it's as hands-on as it gets with your science, and it's like, we talk about stewardship of the Earth, but it's like stewardship of your data and stewardship of your whole, the whole discipline of your science. And for me, if I can go, and they subsidize part of the trip, they, the observatory, if you get the time, will pay for your housing. Can you tell us a little bit about open space and, and exactly oh, yeah. what that is? That, that sounds like a, a, an amazing project, talking about visualization. Yeah, that is a great, thank you for asking about open space. That is one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on. That is a collaboration with the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, we're leading that. It is a space visualization tool. And it came out of the people who work at the Hayden Planetarium in New York. And I know I, um, I know the curator over there. I know the director of data visualization. And they um, knew me and, and came to the museum. And I've been I've known them for a long time. We're in the sixth year of open space now in helping develop programs and content with this tool, this data visualization tool. And what it is, you know, the Hayden Planetarium is known for its amazing space shows. And they were using software that was proprietary and very expensive. Yeah. And the people who worked at the museum there decided they wanted to create an open source tool for mm-hmm. anyone to use and for them to use, to be able to drive through the universe and create the content they wanted. And so what they did is they took their entire database of visualizations, essentially all the data that they had for the digital universe, and put the data set, which was created over decades, like Neil deGrasse Tyson contributed to it, like all the 
data, all the data that's ever been put into the Hayden Planetarium shows is in digital universe. They took that and they're now they're adding to it, and that's part of open space and adding all of these missions that are new and coming online from NASA, wow. adding these data sets. And so what open space is is this tool. The idea is that anyone, teachers, scientists, um, educators, you know, public outreach people, anyone can use open space to drive the universe. And it is like cutting edge visualization. It's a collaboration with Lynch Japan University and you and they have like Sybis group, scientific visualization group. And so our role, what I've done with it, is put up these big screens in the lab and create as eye-catching astronomical and planetary views as I can. And through my students, like I have some really clever interns now who in the summers primarily are creating this content. Like I tell them, create this narrative like we want planetary, we want missions, we want cosmology, you know, we want galaxies, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And making these, and they are very good. They are so visual and they've done such a good job of creating this beautiful 4K high-definition content for the lab. And what I like about it is, you know, you can't tell everybody everything, right? When a visitor doesn't come to the museum to learn astrophysics, they come, they, you know, get excited, have a have a fun day. And so what I think Open Space has enabled at least my lab to do is show them something really beautiful that's real data, visualized in a beautiful way through Open Space, and uh, present it to them and see that, you know, we have astronomy at this museum. You can see some really cool content. I also put up stuff about where they can download it and you right. know, openspaceproject.com. I'll just do a little plug. But it's like you can, you know, giving people the power themselves to do this. To, you know, you can create content. You can create a little, use it for your class or I use it for, with teaching. I take little clips of it and I or sometimes drive through uh, space a little bit in the beginning of lectures with open space. Uh, my science colleagues are waking up a little bit to the benefits of open space and, you know, saying, hey, you know, we want to use it for our gallery. We want to, you know, try to use it for our uses. So that's what, that's what I love about it. Well, Rachel, thank you so much oh, for joining us. That was wonderful. Yeah, we really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank, thank you for you. being with us today. Thank you for taking the time to have me on. This is really uh, exciting to be part of this podcast. It's a great, well, by you. the way, it's a great podcast to have, and I hope it has affected people with our planet. Wow, that, that was so interesting. I, I always oh, yeah. love to, to talk to Rachel. She's such an amazing scientist and, and colleague and friend. I, I think she always has so much to say. Eric, what, what are your thoughts on, on our conversation and interview today with Rachel? Well, it was really impressive. And I think the thing, you know, there was so much to think about. What probably the thing that resonates most for me in this conversation was her ability to take that vast, vast picture of space and what's going on there, and not just the physical space, but going back in time and making that connect to the very small personal things like our relationships with animals. You know, that, that whole thing sort of connects, and she's answering some of our biggest questions. It's, it was really wonderful. What about you, Dan? I, 
I agree. She she can really take the smallest units of you know, elements and chemistry and sort of smoothly go from that and comfortably to talking about planets and galaxies and space. You know, she she really is able to to wrap her head around so many elements of science at the same time and make those, yeah. those personal connections. What a role model, right? I mean, just, oh, yeah. just amazing role model. Thank you for listening to Love Nature. Check back for our next episode as we speak with groundbreaking environmental lawyer and host of PBS North Carolina's Exploring North Carolina, Tom Earnhardt. Please subscribe to never miss an episode. Also, please share Love Nature with others. All of the links mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes at love-nature.org. You can also subscribe there. You can find our museum at naturalsciences.org. Love Nature is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, located in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina.